0: Namotasā bhagavato arahato sammasam buddhasā. Namotasā bhagavato arahato sammasam buddhasā. Namotasā bhagavato arahato sammasam buddhasā. Buddhaṁ dhammaṁ saṅkhaṁ namāṁ very lovely to see so many people here this evening and I hope that all of you and maybe even more are still coming to join us and will stay right through until midnight when we go through our annual ritual of forgiveness and renewal those of you that haven't been here before for our New Year's Eve ritual It's uh, Well I won't run through all the details now because I know there are more people coming later but um, most simply it's an opportunity for us to bring to mind the conventional sense that a year is ending and a new year is beginning and of course actually nothing's happening, We, we can know that but it's just another day and another night but it is a convention, and we can usefully pick up this convention and consider, well, 2004, we did our best, but I <laughs> don't know about you, but I, I made a few mistakes. <laughs> Just one or two. and uh, <laughs> It could have been better, and uh, I'd like to think that uh, 2005 I'm going to be able to do a little better. And so our ritual involves reflecting on that and saying, well, there's a few people that I, I wasn't 100% pleasant to all the time and uh, it would be a good thing to tidy that up. And so we we, we have this conventional way of, of asking for forgiveness, for asking for forgiveness from all those that we may have Caused harm to whether it's individuals or other living creatures or the planet that we're living on, and and, and then also, um, you know, not everybody's treated me with 100% loving kindness all the time. And I could carry that around into the next year as well, but it won't do me any good, or them any good, or the world any good, or anybody any good. So the intelligent, sensible thing to do would be to wipe the slate clean and and say, well, whatever's happened, I offer forgiveness. Some of you will notice that Tanpunyo is not here with our gathering this evening, and he's probably right now in the air somewhere between here and and Thailand. He's headed off to Thailand, to Asia, for two years. And the traditional way of saying goodbye, we don't get out the tubes of fosters and (laughs) have a good time. We... We, we, he comes to see me with a tray of candles, flowers, and incense, and bows three times and asks for forgiveness and for anything that's happened and has caused offence. And and then I, of course, say, of course, I forgive you. And then anything that I've done, please forgive me. And and this this way of clearing the slate is a skillful way of of opening ourselves up to other possibilities. And so. There are infinite possibilities, actually. 2005, anything could happen. And if we were of a negative disposition, we could think of all the unpleasant things that could happen, but we could also think of all the wonderful things that could happen. And there are many wonderful things that could happen in the next year. And so to open ourselves up to those possibilities, and that's the second part of our ritual, is there'll be, uh, we'll replace this incense dish with another bigger incense dish, and people are invited to write down their aspirations on a piece of paper and and bring them up and off them in the place of incense into the incense dish and these aspirations are stated consciously and intentionally and witnessed by everybody here ways of guiding ourselves skillfully giving ourselves direction for for the year ahead so I'm happy that you've come to join us for this and and mark this conventional turning of the ear. Just how we relate to conventions, I think it's up to us really. One of the things that attracted me to Theravadan Buddhism was that there is a lot of space to be creative. uh, (laughs) Sometimes in Thailand we'd be in the midst of some terribly important ritual or other and And the senior monk would forget what he was supposed to do (laughs) and have to ask somebody else, what comes next? Or the candles would fall over, or Ajahn Chah would decide he wants to go to the toilet, so he'd go to the corner of the room and find a spittoon and take a leak (laughs) in the middle of this sacred ritual. (laughs) I thought, well, I like religious rituals where you can take a leak in the middle, and and it's, it's it's not so precious that there's not a room to take a leak. And I think sometimes when we, religious rituals and conventions and structures in general, we can get overly fixated on them and overly literal about them. Or the religious teachings of any kind, we can get overly literal in in how we grasp what's being said. And if we're overly literal, we lose the spirit. I think we talked about this last Week on Sunday, something like this, talking about translating teachings and how we have to be careful in the way that we translate the teachings. Because if we if we grasp them too tightly and we're too literal in how we translate them, then as I said, we we lose the spirit. We become rigid, and and then we don't get the results that we're looking for. I mean, surely the point of religious teachings is to open us up to to greater possibilities of freedom and well being and and contentment and happiness and joy and wisdom and these, these wonderful qualities and yet if we're not careful about the way we pick it up we can, in this case being too literal we can find ourselves religion can end up making us more miserable we can become intolerant and unfriendly and insensitive and unkind and even Depressed because we don't think we're as good as we should be or whatever. So I think uh, being quite careful not to be too literal is very, very important in how we translate these teachings. I read a story recently about, well, it's a newspaper article about an American hairdressing company. They decided to market something that they called a mist stick, I don't know if you know what a mist stick is, but apparently it's something that you make curls with. We don't have much use for them, but you, uh, <laughs> apparently you wrap your hair around it and this thing exudes some mist or other, and, and this mist stick curls your hair. And, and, and there was, there's this American company decided to market it in Germany, and so they literally translated mist stick, but they didn't f- realize that mist actually is a slang word for manure. And uh, so they're selling these manure sticks in Germany, and they didn't market very many. They didn't. Uh, <laughs> they didn't sell very many. So if we're not careful, we don't get the result we're looking for. Talking about marketing things, as somebody here was talking to me earlier about marketing T-shirts. They're going to print a T-shirt, and and there was a, another story about marketing T-shirts. This was in Mexico. The Pope was going to visit Mexico, I think, earlier this year, and some ingenious character in Florida decided to produce T-shirts that said, I've seen the Pope. But whoever it was didn't really check out their translations very carefully, and what he put instead of El Papa was something like La Papa, which apparently means I've seen the potato. (laughs) And... Again, I don't think they sold very many T-shirts in Mexico when the Pope was there. So <laughs> it, there's a lot in it. I mean, these are, these are kind of silly worldly examples, but a lot of people, the way people relate to Buddhism, like Buddhist teachings talk about life is suffering. But if we don't really look at what's being said there, then we don't get the result we're looking for. I mean, as I said, religion is there to make us happier, to make us feel good about life. The Buddha said life is suffering. Sabe Sankara Dukkha. That's what he said. Quote, unquote. Sabe Sankara Dukkha. All things are Dukkha. Suffering. But If we just take that literally, you can say, well, everything is suffering. And I've seen some books that says this, and Buddhism teaches everything is suffering. And and you can go around and you can see, well, actually, yeah, obvious, it's true, isn't it? I mean, the whole thing's a mess. It's awful. My body's awful, and the weather's awful, and it's not difficult to make up a list of how awful life is. And we could pick it up that way. And then he goes on, the Buddha goes on to say that desire is the cause of suffering. You say, well that's obviously correct because my desires are frustrated all the time and even when I get what I want I just want more desires and so so we're going to start to stop wanting. And that's what a lot of people do with the Buddha's teaching is to try and stop wanting. I shouldn't want things. and But if we're a little more careful about it and not just Taking it at face value, not just grasping at how it initially appears to us what 's really being said, actually pick it up and realize this is for something to me to contemplate this is not this is not a doctrine, this is not a doctrine, this is not an injunction. The Buddhist teaching said these are pointings, so these are pointings in a direction to go, so when somebody 's pointing at a direction, you don't go and grab their finger, do you? Not unless you're a bit weird. <laughs> Somebody told me a good good experiment for this, actually. You can't do it in here because there's too many light bulbs. But what you can do sometimes is when you're outside looking at the moon or you're in a room with one light bulb, if you point your finger, you can do it, actually. You can point to one light bulb, point to one light bulb, and you can look. If you look at the light bulb, you've got several fingers. But if you look at your finger, you've got several light bulbs. Now, that's very interesting, if you get my point. It's very interesting. You depend If you're not looking at the right thing, you can get a completely misinterpretation. If you're looking at the direction the finger's pointing, you can see, yeah, there's one place to go, and there are many ways of pointing. That's true, that's valid, that's helpful. But if you look at the wrong thing, then you can get confused, you know, there's lots of goals. So this teaching is a pointing. It's something that we need to listen to take inwards, consider, and say, well, how do we apply it? How does, how does this apply to me? How do I make it work? The Buddha also talked about meditation being good for you, and, and you can read the scriptures, and it, it talks about how you're supposed to develop highly refined states of concentration, and, and you get well, all wound up and enthusiastic about developing these highly refined states of concentration. and The, the Buddha did speak about this often, with great enthusiasm. But then you find out that you can't attain these great states of concentration, and, and you can get disappointed and miserable, and then decide that, well, you're a failure, you've, you know, you've failed. Or you know, the, the talk about morality, of course, the Buddha spoke a lot about morality, and very refined morality, and and the very least, he said, with five precepts, you're supposed to keep five precepts. but. And you can think, well, that's a very good idea, and you can start out with enthusiasm and try to keep the five precepts, and, but then you find you fail. And if we're taking these teachings as, as an injunction, as a doctrine, as something to be grasped, as something to measure ourselves up against, as whether we're a success or a failure, well, you can easily see yourself as a failure. But I would encourage us all to consider very seriously that that's not what the Buddha was encouraging at all. That rather these teachings are pointing. whether it's the teachings on Samadhi or teachings on wisdom or teachings on morality, if, if people can't keep five precepts, well then you can say, well keep four. If you can't keep four precepts, we'll keep three. Well at least keep one. Keep one precept, don't kill anybody. At the very least. So whatever, wherever we find we are, we can take these teachings as an encouragement to improve ourselves a little bit. So it's got a lot to do with how we grasp the teaching. If we if we grasp the teachings too literally, too rigidly, then what gets configured in our mind is a very black and white sort of world of right and wrong and should and shouldn't, how I should be and how I shouldn't be. And that can be that can be really painful. So at the ending of this year, in the beginning of the new year, I'd like to encourage this theme of Whatever spiritual teaching it is we're picking up, whatever contemplation we're engaging in, to remember to keep the perspective that, that's, that's looking and say, how does this apply to me in my case, where I'm at? Where I'm at. It's so easy to believe in doctrine or to believe in in experts, including religious experts who tell us how we should be, ecological experts, political experts, and we can we can really become intimidated by experts. But sometimes experts get it all wrong. A lot of these translations that I was talking about, I like reading it, I like when I come across these translations. You get some expert to translate your product for you. you're going to advertise your product in a foreign country, you get an expert to translate it. There was another one, another story I like, this American airline was wanted to advertise again in Mexico in Spanish, wanted to advertise their first-class seats and the first-class accommodation. I don't know if any of you speak Spanish, but what they wanted to say was fly in leather because the leather seats were the first-class seats. But apparently when you translate it literally, what it means is fly naked. (laughs) Which, of course, it didn't have the desired effect. Either the American Airlines were very disappointed or the Mexicans (laughs) tried it out and were disappointed (laughs) to see that it wasn't what they were expecting. (laughs) So we can blame Buddhism or we can blame Christianity or we can blame Judaism or Islam or we can blame the politicians or we can blame the experts, whatever. We can blame out there for the suffering that we experience in life. We can blame our parents who are supposed to be experts at bringing us up. Or we can let go of that kind of putting responsibility outwardly and follow the encouragement that we're given in the Buddhist part of teaching and actually look at the way that we're approaching these teachings, whatever they are. Even if it's like a physical discipline, like yoga, I know a lot of people who really injured themselves badly trying to do yoga. You get this Iyengar book on yoga and try and put yourself into these contorted postures and end up in the physiotherapy department or having to go and see the chiropractor. Or also reading what the Buddha said about sitting under the Bodhi tree and I'm going to sit here until my blood dries or my bones break and and people come on meditation retreats sometimes like this, and very noble aspirations that we all have to improve ourselves and settle the matter once and for all. And But then you end up ruining your cartilage and uh, being uncomfortable for the rest of your life. So however it is that we pick up these teachings, physical teachings on yoga or spiritual teachings, if we grasp it in the wrong way, then it makes our outlook on life very well my experience is it makes our outlook on life very black and white, very rigid, how how things should and shouldn't be, including me, how I should and shouldn't be. I shouldn't be I shouldn't get angry anymore. I should be more sensitive. Now, of course, a certain degree of should and shouldn't is absolutely fine. I mean, it's absolutely right that I shouldn't get angry. It's true. I shouldn't get angry. I should never get angry. It doesn't matter what any of these young monks say or do to me. After all I've done for them, they can just come and dump on me anytime they like, and I should be perfectly equanimous. That's really how it should be. But sometimes it's not, and sometimes I, I, I don't meet the mark. And, and sometimes other people are not how they should be. That's quite clear, but again, how we grasp or how we hold that should is up to me, isn't it? I could be saying, well, I shouldn't be angry. Thankfully, after 30 years of of following this path of practice, when I say to myself, I shouldn't be angry, I don't make too big a problem out of it. I say, yeah, I really shouldn't be angry, but sometimes I do. And when I do, i suffer, and I'll take that suffering... And I make a determination, may the suffering teach me to be less angry next time. And then just let go, forgive myself and move on. And that's actually quite a constructive approach to anger. I still sometimes get angry, but I don't get angry so much. And when I do get angry, I, I get over it much quicker. And that's the big difference. I could, when I say I, don't get, I shouldn't get angry, I, I can get really heavy about it and come down with this heavy judgment on myself or... And if I'm doing that to myself, well then I'm also doing it to others. The world shouldn't be the way it is. There shouldn't be tidal waves. That's very relevant right now. I know for a lot of people, they're looking desperately for a way to come to terms with what is a terrible sadness. There's no question about it. I think everybody will have heard the uh, tremendous suffering that there is as a result of this tidal wave. And, of course, that sadness, is nothing wrong with that. That's appropriate to feel sad when you hear or read or see the extent of the loss of, of people. But if our mind comes in with something like, it shouldn't be this way, I think that's a result of something that we're doing. It is this way. Now, we all know that. This is not a war that we can then blame somebody else and say they shouldn't have started it. With wars, it's easy to blame George Bush or Tony Blair or somebody. Then we turn George Bush and Tony Blair into horrendous monsters. Actually, I imagine both George Bush and Tony Blair are probably quite decent people. Serious blind spots, but I know a lot of nice people with serious blind spots. It's just those people with blind spots are very powerful people, and Their blind spots have serious consequences, but that doesn't make them monsters. But we can turn them into monsters, and then we feel, well, they started these wars, and they shouldn't have started these wars, and that gives us some sort of contentment. But with a tidal wave, well, you can't really blame anybody, can you? You can't say, well, Mother Earth shouldn't have moved. It's what happens. This planet is a a living thing, and it moves. But it can cause us a lot of frustration when we come up against such things. And from a practice perspective, surely the skillful thing to do is to look and see, well, how can I accord with this in a meaningful way? If we don't make a problem out of the fact that there is a tidal wave, we could still make a problem out of the fact that we feel terribly upset about it. I certainly lost some sleep over it. I I felt very upset when I saw what had happened and very disturbed. But even losing sleep, we don't have to make a problem out of that. We don't have to say it shouldn't be this way. If we're not relating to life in a grasping way, but our mindfulness is a a mindfulness based on our own personal involvement with life, our own personal relationship with life, well then, then when we're relating in a way that's not helpful, we can let go. We, we realize, this is I'm doing this. I'm holding too tightly. We realize, there's not somebody else who's doing this to me. Nobody else is making me suffer. Yes, I feel sad. But I don't have to get depressed over it. I don't have to get indignant over it. And then the good news is that we can accord with, even sadness. You know, sadness is appropriate. When something like this happens, well, sadness is, is obvious. It's, it's tragic. But how can we be sad and still think clearly? Obviously when something tragic happens and a lot of people are suffering, I and, think, and what can I do to help? And We need to think clearly. We need to think very clearly. And Here I'm, I was very pleased that we made contact with a Sri Lankan friend who lives down south. He's the national representative in this country of an organization called the international noble, noble sharing organization which has been set up many years in Sri Lanka where they help primarily orphans but also poor people and underdeveloped parts of the country and so they've already got a good structure in place in Sri Lanka for helping people and and they're they're connected with a particular monk there Bhante Sila who comes here every year to visit us for the last few years very impressive, very fine monk and, and their organization is based on meditation and wise reflection and to see these people operating, and speaking with one person in particular, to the enormity of the task, being directly involved with loss and pain and suffering, yet to witness this clarity, it's beautiful. The clarity, the compassion, the competence is wonderful to be a part of, really. So here in the community, we're very happy to endorse anybody who, who does want to help out there to go through this organisation. There are many other ways of helping, but if somebody's looking for a way to help. There are some papers out the front in the vestibule there which give details of how either to contribute in kind. There are various shipments of things going out to Sri Lanka. Also financially there are details available on how to sponsor orphans. As you be aware there are many children who have been orphaned as a result of what's happened and I think they estimate it's costing uh, I think £100 a year to sponsor uh, an orphan child and and the community here has contributed to sponsoring five children for the next five years as a gesture of, of support. But for me, it was a good example to see of this organization, or, or some of these people in this organization, to see how it's possible to embrace suffering in a very sensitive, very compassionate, very clear way, but not to be, not to crumble under the weight of it. And that takes training, that takes preparation. You know, if we if we don't prepare ourselves, we don't train ourselves, well what happens when we come across things that are actually very natural. I mean, although it's it's difficult to take on board, tidal waves are, are perfectly natural things to happen. Earthquakes are perfectly natural things to happen. Here we live in Northumberland, I think I've been here in Northumberland for 13 years I think now, I don't think I've experienced a single earthquake where I lived in Wellington, we used to have earthquakes all the time Wellington is slap bang right on the fault line the same fault line that goes all the way from Sumatra down through Java, across the top of Australia down through New Zealand, right through Wellington, the capital city, right where our monastery is, slap bang sitting right on the fault line and then tails around down to Tasmania, under Tasmania into the Antarctic where a lot of people may not have noticed but on the 24th of December there was another 8.1 earthquake and that's on the 24th, that's just two days before the 8.9 one in, in Sumatra. There's a bit of activity going on and I'm about to go out to New Zealand to Wellington and I've just been thinking about, well it's okay when you're sitting in nice safe Northumberland to think about it's perfectly natural that there'd be earthquakes and there'd be tidal waves, but when you're in the middle of it, in the middle of seeing other people being swept away or being cut to shreds, and it's, it's very different, and it does take preparation. And so I feel this is this is certainly how I see what our spiritual life is about. Most of us live such a hugely privileged life, we're, we're so fortunate, and, and when things like this happen we, we can be shocked completely shocked because we think it just shouldn't happen or even just getting sick these two people that we dedicated chanting to this evening Margaret Phelps was only 40 years old when she died and, and Sion was only 29 years old when he died both from cancer and all of us I know I'm sure known people who die very young from cancer and we can say well it shouldn't be this way but where's that coming from if we say it shouldn't be this way, well, I would suggest that that's something extra, and we don't have to add that. If we hear these teachings clearly, if we pick up these teachings carefully, sensitively, creatively, with with agility, and not compulsively or reactively, well, then the message gets through, and the message is that we are responsible, that, that we in our own heart of hearts have the authority, we already have the authority to determine how we relate to life. We can relate with grasping, or we can relate to life in a mindful, sensitive, compassionate way. And that's not just a mindful, sensitive, compassionate way when we're having a good time. It's, it's easy when we're having a good time. Ajahn Chah used to say, Well, if you want to look at whether a a soldier is any good you don't look at him when he's on parade because that's very convenient, it's easy to look good when you're on parade, you've got to tell how he behaves when he's in battle and likewise with a monk or a nun, if you want to know whether they're any good or not you don't look at them when they're sitting in the meditation hall and they're nice zafu, you look at them on a festival day when there's too much food around and lots of nice young women or nice young men around All the stimulus of the senses are the things that tend to cause monks and nuns problems. In other words, when we're really challenged, when we're really challenged by life, when when things are not how I want them to be, that's really the opportunity for us to deepen our practice. If we understand the spirit of this training properly, we don't just default to saying, well, it shouldn't be this way, I shouldn't be this way, life shouldn't be this way, I should know better or whatever, but rather with all our subtlety, with all our sensitivity, with whatever humility we can muster, we put our hands together and we bow into the situation and say, what can I learn from this? What can I learn from this? If we're suffering, if we hear the Buddha's message and we're suffering, the response to it is that, what can I learn from this? What is there to teach me in this? And if we have this attitude, well then I believe we will learn. We will learn, we will grow. Whatever's happening, we'll be able to benefit from it. And the good news is that as we benefit, as we learn to be able to stay peaceful in the midst of confusion, or with a heart of loving kindness amongst those who are full of hate, as it says in the Dhammapana, as we start to experience for ourselves that this is a real possibility for ourselves individually, that we can develop these things, we can do something about it, well then, as we discover this for ourselves, we find that these blessings and this goodness and this happiness that we are experiencing for ourselves is something that others benefit from. This is the way really to benefit others. We really can benefit others, we really can make a difference to the world if we discover this possibility within ourselves. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Mm Amen. Um.